This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Fitz, and if you don't know who I am, here's a quick bio. Veteran sports journalist who writes, does TV, radio, and is a longtime podcaster. Also, I have stage 4 prostate cancer, so my doctors advise me to stay home during these COVID-19 concerns. So what am I doing with my time? I'm calling some of the many friends, athletes, coaches, and colleagues who have been part of my life during more than 30 years in journalism. Oh, and I'm hitting the record button. Welcome to my life and the Life of Fitz podcast. I would not trade my fraternity experience at Kansas State for anything else I did while in school. The strength and friendships I built while in my fraternity constructed a foundation for everything I have accomplished. Simply put, I am where I am because of the men who helped form me during those years on campus. One of the things I'm most proud of during the spring semester of my freshman year, that would have been back in 83, was we rushed a good friend of mine, Mike Morris, and Maury pledged the house and eventually was voted an active member, becoming the first African-American member of the Pi Cap Alpha fraternity chapter at K-State. A few years later, a guy who remains one of my closest friends in the world, Ron Bethel, was the Rush chairman for the house, and he signed an incoming freshman out of Overland Park. And Al Jones became the second active African-American in K-State Pike history. I now look back and understand both the importance of what we accomplished, and also it just seems incredible that this took place in my lifetime. Al entered college right after my departure, so we became friends a bit farther down the road of life, but our bonds have grown strong through the years. Al Jones is one hell of a guy. He walked on to the K-State football program under Stan Parrish and played two years as a tight end. Then when Bill Snyder arrived in December of 1988, he put Jones and his teammates through a trial by fire. Jones and those who survived the process are honored now as members of the foundation for all that came after them. K-State football as it is now would not exist without the work put in by Jones and his fellow foundation members. A model and talent scout since leaving K-State, Al Jones now lives in the Las Vegas suburbs, and we are about to call him. Hello, Al. It's Tim Fitzgerald. Hey there, buddy. What's going on? Nothing. How's things in Vegas? It's hot, bro. <laughs> it's it's, it's really, really, really hot here. But things are going, man. You know, it's a roller coaster. This whole summer's been a roller coaster. I know. Um, do you ever get down into the happenings now? Do you go down to the Strip or downtown or anything? Not really. Um, you know, guys will come into town obviously for vacation and, you know, may go down there, say hi, have a drink, like when you were here that last time. But, 
Yeah, not a big, not a big strip guy. That's such a weird thing about people that live in Las Vegas. Almost everyone answers that the same way. Yeah, it's you, you try to you try to steer pretty clear of uh, the strip. It's a, it's a little hectic, a little busy, um, especially what's going on right now. So, yeah, not much, uh, not much strip going around here no, no. for locals. Yeah, so. Well, let's uh, let's go back to this. I want you to explain to me or spell out to me your interesting career because I, I love what you're doing it, and I know it's slowed down right now with the pandemic. But go through what you're doing for a job right now. It's so cool. I am vice president um, of a music scouting company. Um, it's called World Scout. What we do is we work with about 40 to 50 of big record producers, uh, record labels, uh, record executives, A&R. And uh, before the pandemic, we, we, hold, we hold events where we give an opportunity for independent music artists, undiscovered music artists to showcase themselves in front of pretty much these people that can make their careers. So it's, uh, it's really cool. It's... Uh, you know, I spent probably 15 years before uh, scouting talent, models and actors for all the big modeling agencies and Fox and MTV and uh, all the big agencies. And I kind of moved into the music business now. So it's a great opportunity to uh, get these young, undiscovered artists an opportunity to get their foot in the door with, uh, you know, the connections that we have in the music business. So it's really, really cool. Um, we were doing events and obviously events are put on hold now. So we kind of had to pivot. <laughs> And uh, we just got done doing a um, uh, contest uh, where uh, the winners won prizes and opportunities to work with some big producers like Jay and Coco, who did Nelly's album, uh, Country Grammar. Uh, and so we had about, I'd say, 1,700 uh, undiscovered music artists, independent artists from all around the world, six continents. Uh, there was about a, over a million hits on the website, and uh, we just finished that contest a little while back ago. Some great new artists got an opportunity to uh, win some cash and prizes and uh, work with some of the big people in the industry. So giving people education on the industry and, and how to further their career, and then these people are going to get an opportunity to uh, – we have a platform that we're working with, um, Orbits, who uh, they're able to upload their music, and then these uh, – Industry executives are going to have an opportunity to showcase these undiscovered artists. So it's pretty cool. That's really cool. That's really yeah, it's cool. Fun. And that that contest turned out to be a lot bigger than what I think you and I initially talked about. That that's huge. Yeah, it got really big. We were excited. Um, and, and the great thing about it is, you know, we're we're here domestically in the states. How we launched the company, but. Uh, you know, it gained traction. I mean, six different continents. Uh, the guy who ended up winning, uh, he's from Toronto. I know there was a girl from Paris that ended up getting like third or fourth place. So it kind of picked up steam overseas um, and had a lot of artists uh, upload their stuff and enter the contest that did really, really well. So we're kind of went from domestically and now moving forward, we're going to do it globally. So cool. it's uh, it's really cool. We're really excited about the future. That's really cool. What kind of uh, music genre does he fit one? Did the winner fit into? Well, the first event that we had most uh, our, our sweet spot is uh, hip hop and R and B, mm -hmm. rap. 
but we're moving on, and uh, the, event, the new event that we're doing at the end of uh, August, it's going to be uh, hip-hop, R&B, uh, rock, and also country, and EDM. Wow. So we're expanding to other genres, uh, other music industry, and, and uh, you know, opening up the floodgates a little bit. So, you know, we're going to have some big executives that – that kind of corner that market and work with those type of artists. So it's, it's really exciting. It's a big monster to tackle, but yeah, you know, I would think picking a winner would be difficult when you're in different genres, when you're kind of in a lane, you can compare everyone. But uh, when you go across, like trying to compare EDM to country to rap, I, I don't know how you figure out who's the best. Right. So it, what we're going to do is it's going to be it's going to be stanchioned off the, with the different genres. Uh, so it's going to be separate from each other as far as uh, and, and the event we're going to do. It's more of a search. It's more of uh, an opportunity to showcase yourself. But I put it I kind of coordinate to, let's say, an NFL combine, like a combine. Right. So these athletes get an opportunity to showcase their skills in front of, you know, these big, you know, uh, sports executives, we do this. We're doing the same exact thing for these different genres of music. So uh, yeah, it's 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 very exciting. We're very excited about it. Just got off a four hour phone call on Sunday, so <laughs> we're ready to go. We're ready to go. So in a weird way, this pandemic, you guys have found a way. You mentioned a pivot, but you kind of found a way to recreate yourself in a in a different way that might actually be a long lasting impact on your business. Yeah, it's 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 giving us an opportunity to expand, like I said, uh, overseas and internationally. Uh, which, when you're doing a brick and mortar event, where you know you're flying in forty to fifty of these record executives for a weekend to get people education on the industry and to show and get to see these undiscovered talent and you know and who they might be interested in, doing it online enables us to find these artists internationally and give them an opportunity to showcase themselves to, you know, these executives stateside. So, uh, yeah, it has, it's, we pivoted, um, you know, it's a lot better when you can see people in person. Absolutely. Uh, the last event we did in Orlando, I was out there for three and a half weeks and my three and a half weeks were going to open mics around Orlando and all around Florida and seeing these undiscovered artists and, you know, seeing the talent, which is what I love to do. Uh, seeing people in person and, and, and getting, you know, a feel of who they are, you know, as a person and their personality. And so now, uh, yes, our, 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 you know, our outreach is a lot bigger now, uh, which we were kind of forced to do. And it, it's, it's turning out pretty good. We're excited. I'm always amazed in, in music, how much talent there is out there, how many people that can just flat perform. Do you get, I don't want to sit and sound harsh here, a little bit numb to the talent level, so it takes something really special to perk up your ears? Not really, because, you know, it's it's about it's about their ta talent and how they are as an artist, but then also, you know, their personality and who they are as a person comes in a, a lot more than people think. Um, you know, you can take one person that can sing and another person that sings, the difference between one person succeeding and the other person not succeeding has to do with their drive and their passion and, um, you know, how they, uh, you know, how they're into what they're doing and, and, and their dedication. And then, you know, you, no one wants to work with a nightmare. I don't care how great they are. You know what I mean? And a lot of times people come across as not a nightmare, but then they get their foot in the door and then they become nightmares. But, you know, you want to work with someone that's real and work hard. You want to work with someone that has a great personality, um, that's marketable. Because, you know, obviously, 
you know, music these days, music entails acting and it entails modeling and, you know, photo shoots and representing products and stuff like that. So you got to have somebody that's pretty versatile with, with a great personality and attitude. Yeah. How the hell did you get into this? <laughs> that's an interesting thought. So when I was at K-State, uh, right when I finished playing ball, I had a little school left and I started modeling and actually, uh, the summer of my sophomore year, I went over to Sweden and modeled in Sweden. I took off. I didn't stay at school and work out. I went over to Sweden, spent the summer there and visit agencies and stuff like that. So, uh, right after school, I got into modeling and then I signed with the Ford agency and I, I, uh, moved to New York and, you know, did commercials have done it probably 60 TV commercials, uh, and been in magazines and stuff like that. And then I got behind the scenes. So the company that started me as a model, I became very close with the owner of that company. And then I became a scout. So I spent pretty much over a decade traveling 275 days a year around the U S and Canada, looking for models and actors for all the big agencies. So, that's how I got into the business as far as scouting people. Um, you know, we've got a lot of great talent, a lot of great people that are doing extremely well in the industry right now. Uh, the company that I work for, we started Rob McElhaney, who is uh, the star of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, creator and star of that show. Good friend of mine, Chris Backus, who's a big actor, who's married to Mira Savino. And so... I had an opportunity to scout these undiscovered talent and travel around the country and speak to people about the industry and uh, give them advice, you know, being from the industry. And so I got in that way. And then a, a friend of mine who worked at a co competitive company um, and we had the same position at a competitive company, she reached out to me. Uh, I see a little over a year ago and said, Hey, I have this project that I'm working on. I need, you know, I, I want you to be involved. And so she flew to Vegas and took me to dinner and pitched me her idea. And I got it right away. And I said, all right, I'm on board. So, uh, here I am in the music business. So, yeah. Uh, it's, I've always, uh, told people that, uh, yeah, Al, my friend who's a model and you know, that just gives you credibility right there when you know an international model. So thank you for that. <laughs> I'm, I'm so retired now. I'm I'm old man now. So, yeah, I, I'm, I've been retired for a while. I don't want to take it. There's no more pictures for me professionally. Damn it. Uh, and you know what? This is really weird, and you're going to find this hard to believe, but not once in my life has someone come up to me and said, are you a model? I've never had that happen. And I just find it stunning. It's stunning. <laughs> I know. You need to. There's a there's always a place for somebody, you know. It, it's so funny when I was a when I was a kid, you know, when I was younger, my mother used to tell me she's like she's like go to these baseball games and these these women, these women, these kids moms are like your son's so handsome. She's like, "I just don't get it." <laughs> I'm like Thanks, Mom. So, yeah, she kept me grounded at a young age. That's good. That's good. Yeah. If, yeah. if you ever come across someone looking for an adult male that looks like a thumb, give them my name. Cause I'm I will hook you up. 100% will hook you up. Absolutely. But you lived in New York for a long time. Give me – I and see, as a guy that lives in the wrong Manhattan or the right Manhattan, in my mind, <laughs> give me a synopsis of what it was like to live in New York City. New York is insane. Um, New York, to me, is one of the greatest cities in the world. Um, there's just so much to do. There's so much diversity. 
and people say New York is a city that never sleeps. It doesn't sleep. You're always on the move. You're always on a subway. You're always around people. Uh, there's always traffic. There's always noise. And it's just steadily, steadily going. And But what I love about New York is it's one of the only places in the world where you can walk out of your building and on a city block, you can eat authentic food from all around the world on one city block. And it's just there's it's just such a melting pot of people, you know, it's, um, you know, you get on the subway and you're going somewhere and you, you're sitting next to such a diverse group of people, um, economically and, you know, racially. And you just, and everybody's just, everybody's just there, you know, they're doing their thing. And that's, that's, that's just New York for you. Um, it's just a great, it's just a great city. New York has a big piece of my heart and yeah, I've lived there. I lived there a long time, uh, there in Los Angeles. Um, but yeah, New York, I love New York. It's so great. And when you say everyone is there, that's exactly how I feel when I'm in New York. Everyone is there. It's like, I need some room here. Could you get it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's like New York is, it's just, I, I, it's hard to explain. It's like, I remember the first time, I think it was like 25 and I, when I was, uh, moving to New York, and I had like sent all my stuff, had an apartment in Hoboken right across the river. And I was in Florida working and my CEO and I were flying from Florida back to New York and I had never been to New York. And we were sitting on the airplane and I sat by the window and the first time it was at night flying into New York and it was just like, oh my goodness. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's breathtaking the first time you're there. Yeah. It's just overwhelming. Yeah. But it's such a great city. Well, you're never short on things to do, but I'm glad at this time in the world, you're probably happy you weren't in New York because that would be kind of the last place I'd want to be during a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's for some reason it's, uh, I moved from New York. The first time I lived in New York, I left New York, I'd say, no, probably June of 2001 right before 9-11 and I moved, I moved to LA and the craziness is, you know, I left, I left uh, Brooklyn. I was living in Brooklyn. I left Brooklyn about a year, a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago to move to Vegas. And now, you know, all this craziness is hitting with the COVID. So yeah, I kind of move at the right time. It seems the last few times I lived in New York. So New York, LA, Vegas, Vegas must feel so remote to you. Vegas reminds me, I live out in the suburb, right? Uh-huh. So it's funny because I was talking to somebody. Vegas, where I live out, out in the Summerlin area, reminds me of Overland Park, where I grew up. <laughs> 100%. It, it's suburbia. Um, you know, it's not a lot of traffic. Uh, you know, there's a lot of cool parks and things you can do. And in, without having to go down to the strip and there's a lot of, it's like a community out here. And it really, it's one of the first places I've lived since I left, you know, Kansas city almost 30 years ago that, uh, that reminds me of Johnson County. It really does. Okay. Except for the strip. Yeah. Except for the strip. The core. Yeah. Right. yeah. There's nothing like that. I mean, it's just this weird, bizarre world parked in the middle of an otherwise normal town, Las Vegas. Right. Yep. So how did you end up at Kansas State? How did I end up at K-State? So I uh, grew up in, you know, I went to Shawnee Mission South High School, grew up in Overland Park. 
And uh, my senior year in high school, I didn't get a lot of Division One offers to go play football anywhere. Uh, you know, I got invited to walk on at Oklahoma State, LSU, Kansas. And my high school tight end coach was a guy named, his name Bert Ottmeyer. Bert Ottmeyer played at K-State. Huh. And he was my coach, my position coach, and we had a great relationship. And, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to play football. I didn't want to go to junior college. That just wasn't the route that I wanted to take. And my best friend in high school's sister was boyfriend was the rush chairman at the Pike House at K-State. So, so I was literally like, okay, well, my friends are going to K-State and I can go play football at K-State. So literally my dad and I, literally drove up to Manhattan that summer and walked up to the football offices. And I walked in there and uh, the, I forgot what coach at the time, but I said, you know, I'm a football player and, you know, I'm going to come to school here and I want to play football. And he's like, what position you play? I was like, tight end, defensive end. He's like, I'm the tight end coach. You're playing tight end. I was like, okay. So I could have easily played defensive line. <laughs> I easily played offensive line, but it just happened. I ran into coach Steele. That was his name. And uh, he said, done. He goes, go meet, go, get paperwork done. He goes, you're coming. You're going to come walk on for us. So I literally was like, okay, I guess I'm playing football at K-State. So that's how that ended up happening, randomly. Yeah. And uh, you ended up in the Pike House, my fraternity. I did. Um, you were, as far as I know, the second African-American in our fraternity, right? Yeah. Were you, a, More- were you the only African-American at the time? Uh, no, Maury was Mike Morris. Mike, Mike Morris, and then uh, I came. I was the yeah. I came in right after. Well, Mike Morris was older, but yeah, I was right after Mike Morris. Yeah. So yep. let me fill people in. Mike Morris is one of my best friends, and when I was in the house, he's a year younger than I am. We rushed him, and he broke the color barrier at the Pike House. He did. Um, and uh, you know, 1983, and it was significant back then. It's silly to think about now, but. In my lifetime, how how far we've come, but still, what was it like to be in a entirely white fraternity other than you guys? The guys were so great, and that's the thing. And you know, when they rushed me, I think, and I didn't find this out till later. They got hassled by some of the old men, like the old, older, older, older guys, like in their sixties, seventies, that yep. were pikes. Yep. They got harassed, and they literally told them. And I found this out later that you know what? Don't ever come back here. We're rushing this kid. He's great. We love him. And if you don't like it, then walk away. And it really showed me a lot about those guys at the Pike House, um, that they were so amazing. And, you know, I met a lot of amazing people I still keep in touch with. Ron Bethel and I still keep in touch. And, uh, you know, a lot of those guys were just – a lot of the older guys, were, you know, they had my back. You know, it was like – and it was, you know, kind of weird. But – um, you know, being one of the first and playing football at the same time as living in the house my freshman year. And, so, you know, for, for people that aren't familiar with the Greek system, pledging someone's one thing, getting them activated is another where racism could have really popped up because it's kind of done in secrecy and you vote on everyone coming in. Right. And, uh, but it never stopped the guys in the house. They're like, oh, yeah, he earned it. You know, that's the way it was with Maury. And, uh, there was, you know, the slightest pushback from someone that uh, was told, shut up. You know, it's just it's you're being silly, but it was the older guys. And you think about it, you stop and think about it. If they're the guy I think we're talking about was nationally known within our fraternity, very prominent, very powerful within our fraternity. But in 1982, he was in his 70s. 
Right. So now you get a concept, of, and from the South, by the way, um, living down there, you know, you kind of get a concept of what his environment and what he grew up in, and it just wasn't acceptable to us, and we didn't put up with it. it no. We told him, we don't want your money if this is the way you're going to be, and that was that. Yeah, the guys were great, man. I mean, the guys, like I said, I still talk to a lot of them, and good friends of mine, and, you know, it was just great, and they had my back, and, you know, they tried to make it, you know, being, being a pledge and playing football was not easy, and they tried to make it as easy as possible for me, which was awesome. So, And, and bringing this yeah. kind of back to K-State football, um, and it's not about you, um, Mike Morris, uh, who was Becky and I's best man in our wedding. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Looks uncannily like Jonathan Beasley. He does look like he's a mixture between Jonathan Beasley and uh, and uh, Brian Gumble, I think. <laughs> so so much so that one one weekend we still have weekends where we all kind of well we haven't done the last couple of years and of course this summer got wiped out. Uh, guys come back and play golf and we all go to Aggieville and it's kind of a shit show. It's you know right. it, we're pikes. That's the way it is. And, That's how. It goes. Uh, uh, Mike came back, and I, you know, I knew it was that weekend, and I knew my one of my best friends in life was in town, and he starts crossing the street, and I look up and I go, "Hey, there's Jonathan Beasley." Right, Beasley. And, no, oh, that's Mike. That's my buddy. That's, I mean, he's like, God, how much older he's than than Jonathan? But it's so funny. They they kind of just look so much alike the way they walk, and basically, what I'm saying is, uh, Mike is the most unathletic person possibly in the world and yet he looks like one of the greatest quarterbacks in k-state history and i find right irony about it right awesome and a really he can good pull guy. it off he's a great dude great dude great guy hey it's fitz let's hit the pause button right here and take a little break paramount plus and the national park foundation present a mountain of zen this Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24 7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24 hour streaming channel serving non stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Okay, so now let's talk about K-State football. You came in at the most historic period of Kansas State football. Uh, so what was your, your freshman year? What year was that, 87? 87. 87. All of 87, yep. So you come into the really bleak years of Stan Parrish, a lot of losing, and then in December of 88, the new coach shows up, and how much did your life change as a Kansas State football player, walk on or not, when Bill Snyder walked in the room? Here's the, the thing about that is we had a lot of walk-ons when I was there. I mean, you got to look at this uh, to put it in perspective. The way Stan Parrish did it was if you were a walk-on, you didn't get to eat with the team. You didn't get weight gain supplements. You weren't in the regular locker room. You were in the visitor's locker room. So he treated walk-ons as a second-class citizen, even if you played. Like I would suit up under Parrish and do special teams and get into the game. And me and Michael Smith used to have folding chairs 
in the regular locker room to get ready for the games. <laughs> so first thing Bill Snyder did when he came in and he found out that the walk-ons were in another locker room, he's like, I don't care where you fit them in. They are not in another locker room. We're a team. Bring them over. So they had to build new lockers in the locker room to put the walk-ons in because he was not having us in a different – he's like, how the hell are they in a different locker room? So – that first thing that he did, he was like, we're a team. I don't care if people are on scholarship or not. We're all together on this team. And it showed a lot of us, you know, a whole lot. When one of the first things he did was like, you're not going to be in that separate locker room. You're going to be with the other guys. I don't care if we put you in chairs. I don't care if we have to build lockers. I'll build them myself. We're putting you guys all together. And, uh, you know, that, that was, that was amazing um, that he did that because we kind of felt like we were outliers, even though we played, you know, so that was one of the first things Coach Snyder did. It just was like night and day and not the knock on Stan Parrish, but, you know, I, I, I'd tell him to the face. I think he was over his head. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we just – it was it was rough. People don't understand how rough it was. It was rough. We had rough everything. We had – you know, we still laugh about it. Me and the guys – during the pandemic, you know, we would get together once a week during the middle of it. And we get on a zoom call with like 10 to 10 of us, 10 to 12 of us, Thomas Randolph, Mike Smith, Frank Hernandez, Jamie Mendez. And we get on a zoom call and just catch up and, and talk Curtis Madden. And, you know, people don't realize like we had hand me down clothes <laughs> and I don't people. So like we would get our equipment I'd have socks with holes in them and no, no elastic. These are like for practice, no elastic in the socks, um, shoes, two sizes, too big. Uh, I had a, me, me and Mike laugh about this, but like they handed out sweats, right. To practice, you know, to practice when it's cold outside and the sweats were hand-me-downs. Like literally I had sweats with the K-State football on it with, the number whited out and my number written on top of the whiteout. <laughs> so, so that's how bad it, that's how bad it was. You know, we'd take a shower and we'd have wet towels or like we'd have our clothes in the, I mean, it was just, it was a mess. It was a mess. And you know, it was, the turf was horrible and the facilities were horrible. And you know, it's, um, it's it makes me proud to see how much the university and how much the program has changed because I know where it came from. I know when we were there, you know, before Bill, before Coach Snyder came in, we were on the verge of not having football. Yeah, it was that bad. I mean, like literally, one or two bad things could have happened. A bad call by Weefall and Steve Miller, you know, that program would have been done. There would have been no football at Kansas State University. Plain and simple. Because we were on the verge of, you know, of not having a program. And coach came in there and he was all business. And I, I see this story. I was like, I remember when his press conference was on campus and I was at the union talking to Paul Watson and Alan Frederick. And we were like, yo, Frida's <laughs> like, our new coach is going to be doing a press conference. We're like, let's go check it out and see who this guy is. And we all took off and went over there and saw coach's press conference standing around in the back. And you could tell from day one that dude was not playing. Coach was seriously, you know, laugh at me if you want, but 
I know how to make this program successful and I'm going to do it and you can laugh all you want, but I'm going to get it done. So you, you, you're either riding with me or you're not. Um, and that's what coach did, you know, that first winter conditioning, like you've heard stories and stories about it. He ran everybody off. Yeah. You know, I don't know if that was on purpose, but he literally, you know, worked our tail off. He ran us like dogs. And he knew if you're on the worst team in college football, maybe one of the worst teams in college football history, mm-hmm. or you're not winning games and I'm busting your ass like nobody's ever bust your ass before and you stick around, you really want to play ball. And those are the guys that I want. And people are leaving in the middle of prep, people are leaving in the middle of conditioning and quitting. Man. And so after that first winter, we were cut in half. Yeah, because people quit and they left and they transferred. I mean, we had some really great players that transferred that left because it was too tough. They were used to it being easy and coach, you know, expected you to do the things that you needed to do. The little things, you know, rules he implemented, uh, being on time, things that we never had to do under Paris because Paris was like, I think he spent most of his time trying to figure out if he's going to save his job and not worrying about running a corporation, which was Kansas state football. So, um, yeah, it just, it was like night and day, you know, and he, he had us believing we were, can win and us as a team came closer together. I mean, it's been 30 plus years, you know, and the guys that I played ball with 30 years ago are some of my closest friends in the world. Of course. So coach came in there and he said, these are the things that need to be done. If you pay attention to me and listen, and you guys, you believe in each other and you believe in yourselves, we can, we can make a change here. And you know, that's what happened. And the rest is history. It's remarkable looking back. Well, first of all, let me say this. I find Stan Paris to be one of the most intriguing characters in all of football. And here's why he did prove himself to be completely incompetent at Kansas state. I mean, he just had no business, being a head coach in the Big Eight, my father was a football coach. We had been following Kansas State since we moved to Kansas in 68. And so he saw, you know, Vince Gibson. He saw other coaches. Jim Dickey, who he thought was a pretty good coach, just had no resources. And Stan Parrish comes along. And my dad, I, I'll never forget it. Uh, I was, you know, just coming out of college and my dad said, I can't watch this anymore. This is the worst coach football team I've ever seen. They don't even do small things right on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. And yet Stan Parrish came to Kansas State because he won a one uh, AA title at Marshall. He went right. on to win a national championship ring as an assistant at Michigan. And he's won a right. Super Bowl ring, too. Right. I, I'm like, this guy's got a trifecta of rings. And yet. His three years at Kansas State were so bad, nothing, literally, Al, you know this, nothing compares to it in college football. This KU team that we all make fun of would have beaten Stan Paris teams. Yeah. Soundly. I mean, it's yep. just, it was that bad. He just was so – there was no rhyme or reason to the program. Like coaches leaving the press box before the game's over and there's no one calling the defense and they give up a touchdown. Yeah, too late. Yeah, it's just just the wild stories. My favorite Stan Parrish story is, and, and a good friend of mine uh, was in the athletic department at the time. He went down to Wichita to watch a running back that was didn't have a scholarship offer, and he pretty much could have this kid. And he came back and he told my friend, quote, a step too slow, a bit too small. <laughs> so Barry Sanders went to Oklahoma State. Yeah, I know, I know. 
Just crazy. Yeah, they passed on Barry. I, yeah, I heard that story. They passed on Barry, which is like, okay. <laughs> That's like, really? Yeah. Um, yeah, but and then Coach Snyder comes in, and here's what's incredible. Another thing people don't understand, what he put you guys through and the way he run it, ran his program for years to come is against the rules now. You can't practice nearly that much. You can't spend that much time with your players even close. No. He he almost created a permanent boot camp where you guys were just put through hell, put through hell, but by God, you learned how to win and he changed the culture. And it was it is we, still the most remarkable turnaround ever. It is. It, it, where we came from and and where where the program went, um you know, it, it's just it's it's insane. And, and you know the craziness is if you think about it. When Paris was coached that last year, we had talent. Yeah. Because you got to understand, most of the guys, you know, we, you know, Coach Snyder came in and filled in the holes. But at the end of the day, the guys that played 91, a lot of the majority of those guys were, you know, 91 and 90 were, were Paris recruits. But Coach Snyder knew how to get the best out of everybody, how to put people in certain roles that they were going to succeed in. And, and, and it worked out and, you know, obviously we had some new guys that were great that helped out tons of great players, but like some, a lot of those guys were old guys. They weren't coach Snyder's guys. So it's, it's, it's crazy. That whole story. It's just something that it's just unbelievable. I tell everybody all the time. I'm like, okay, so one day I want to go rent a bunch of cabins, get a bunch of writers, friends from LA. I want all of us to like stay in these cabins for like three days and tell stories and have these writers write it out so we can do a movie. Cause no one will believe it. I know. I know. I mean, and the problem is, is in a movie you want, you know, them to win the national title or something. <laughs> but in this movie, beating North Texas, that one win is almost like the climax because it was just, it was like uh, at that moment something lifted off the program. Suddenly, K State is the team that can go down the field and win on the last play, and that repeated itself over and over through the early history of Bill Snyder. They would find ways to win when you didn't think they'd win, and that was kind of the magic of him. He just his teams persisted, and it gets back to what you talked about. He wanted the guys who proved they wanted to play for him. Right. And the difference between that and a, a, a Paris team, well, if a situation like that happened on that last drive against North Texas, we all would have been like, here we go again. And I think Mike Smith said it best. He's like, for first time in that huddle, it was like, uh-uh, this ain't happening again. And, you know, that's kudos to Coach Snyder for putting us, you know, giving us that mentality to have. And that's why we won that game, because at the end of the day, Carl Stroh almost got sacked. <laughs> you know what I mean? He did. And, and, and he got the ball off, and Frank made a great catch, and he put it on the button, and, and, and you know, the monkey was off our back, and K-State's never looked back since that one pass. I, I love the story that Carl Straw is one of the few people not to see that play. Because oh, he, he didn't see rocked. it. Carl Straw is one of the toughest quarterbacks you'll ever see. I think he spent half the season with cast around his ankles. Man. He played with cast on his, on his ankles because he had been battered and beat up so much. He's a tough cookie, man. He's yeah. such a good quarterback. Yeah. And from that point on, uh, granted, it was one win in the first season for Bill Snyder. 
But things changed. The next season, what, it was five and then seven and off the program went. It, it was just, it was remarkable. And so much of about it, Al, was attitude and how you prepared and, and things that Coach Snyder is a brilliant tactician. He understands the game so well. He had incredible coaches. I and mean, he looked great coaches. Assistant coaches. But it it was just so much of how you handle yourself and how you prepare. It was just business. It was business. Completely business. Um and I see that mistake. I see coaches making the mistake where they're not quite getting that right. Making guys understand if we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this right and hold each other accountable and it really yep. worked it's it was completely business and, and we we you know people found out very very quickly you know um there's certain things that you have to do and certain places you need to be at a certain time and if you're not you know you're going to be held accountable for it and you know i think a lot of that has helped me in professional life to you know understand you know it's business first and you have to do what needs to be done and you have to do it efficiently or it's not going to work. So it, it helped out a lot in, you know, my future. So I, I never got cat time quite right. Uh, you know, I, I show up for <laughs> press conferences like maybe 90 seconds before kickoff and he'd be going already. And I'm like, crap, now I got to walk in the middle of a press conference. And even though he wasn't my coach, he'd give me that look like you're late. I, I see you Fitzgerald, you're late. And I'm like, I feel guilty, even though I'm just a reporter. You better be on cat time, man. I, there were guys in the dorms that couldn't find a ride out to the stadium, and, and they knew you better be on cat time. And they would run from Moore Hall to <laughs> football because they were not going to be late. And they come in like sweating and panning, and like you know, they made it on time because uh, you got to be on cat time and don't be late. Don't you know? We got a bunch of guys depending on you. Don't let them down. So, yeah. It's a great time, but it's ex it's ex exciting to see what's going on at K State in the future and Coach Kleiman and you know he's 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 got the program I think in the right place you know um, and it looks it look the future looks bright for K State football. It was a uh, kind of an awkward transition, uh, but I think now that people have been around Chris Kleiman, they understand that. Uh, overall, the approach is the same. It's just how you go about it. It's a little bit different. I mean, the big picture, mm -hmm. it's, the schemes are kind of the same. It's just a little bit different. And I think just he's more contoured to the current young person, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to say it. What you guys went through, I, I don't, I can't imagine having kids put up with it these days. I mean, they would all be on Twitter. They'd all be on Facebook, just trashing everything. And, and you guys just did it. Yeah. We didn't have a choice, man. All the guys love football, and we love the school, and we love where we're at. And, you know, we knew we were going to bring pride to K-State. We, we had to go that extra mile that normal students don't have to do, you know. Um, God, I don't miss those two-a-days. <laughs> I don't miss the two-a-days. I don't miss... I really don't miss going to class where you're like biting yourself on the cheek at eight Oh five in the morning. Cause you're exhausted, but you got to sit in class and listen and you got to stay awake. I don't miss those days at all, but uh, you know, what a, what a, what a great experience uh, to have and what a great experience to be part of uh, amazing coaching staff and, and uh, you know, uh, administration and, you know, 
it's it's it, 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 I was lucky. You know, I feel lucky. I feel blessed to uh, to get that opportunity because you know a lot of people don't. Uh, and it was so cool that Coach Snyder never stopped bringing up you guys, the foundation, and and the base you built for the program. He always kept it in context that you guys paid the dues for others to stand on your shoulders, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah, he he gave us a lot of a lot of yeah, you know, we were his first guys, you know. And uh, we made a lot of sacrifices that people don't have to, you know, that, that, that the kids don't have to now. You know, obviously they have to sacrifice and they work hard and they do the, you know, the right things. But I mean, it's, uh, I mean, just the condition of the program when when we all got there before Coach Snyder got there and when he first got there, it was just completely different. You know, no fans in the stands, um, it, it, not a lot of support. And it's so crazy. The people that supported this then are still the same ones that are supporting the program now. And they're, you know, they're there, but we didn't have a lot of support. And, um, and, but, you know, we had each other, you know, we had each other and, and, and we believed in what we were doing and we believe we could make a change. And, you know, that was instilled in us and, you know, we worked hard and it happened, um, which, you know, we, 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 we did, it was a big feat. What we accomplished at K-State and what K-State has accomplished, uh, was a big feat. And I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, the, the, the coaching staff now and the administration, you know, they want to take it to, uh, to, to the next level, to a higher level. And, uh, you know, I think they've gotten a, gotten a pretty good start and, you know, the support that all these kids had and, you know, they made me proud with all the stuff that was going on on campus. Um, seeing them speak out, yeah. you know, it made me proud to see, uh, the torch from us old, old, old guys have been passed along and, uh, to these younger guys and, and, and the torch is being carried, um, because, you know, the, they're doing what we most likely would did too. You know what I mean? Um, and just seeing those guys sticking together and, and seeing coach Kleiman and, and, and our AD sticking up for these kids and saying, you know, these are our guys and we're going to support them showed me a lot. And, uh, you know, I'm completely convinced that the program is in secure hands and, and, and the kids are amazing. And, you know, I was very, very proud of uh, all the young, young guys. What really stuck out to me about that situation was nationally people saw it as a players against the school type thing. And it really wasn't because the coaches and the administration were hell yeah you're right you know <laughs> even though right. university president's like yeah we got to we got to fix this we we you know got to root it out whatever we can which is true of all of us in all of society when you see it you got to fix it when it comes to people that are being insensitive or just blatantly racist or sexist or whatever you um, know just don't put up with it anymore and and I was it was a really cool moment no it wasn't. It wasn't like at Oklahoma State where a player lashed out at the coach. Right. This was the players not even really lashing out the university. It wasn't like they were saying this is such a racist institution. They were saying it's here. Please realize it's here. Even though you may not see it, we see it. Help us fix this. And I think most K-Staters were like, we need to fix this. Even if, we, you know, I wouldn't see it probably. But I know if you walked on campus, you would notice some things. It's just different background, different style, lifestyles. Yeah. I, you know, and it's, it's, um, you know, I always said, you know, I, I got tons of phone calls about that. And, and, you know, my whole thing is K-State to me, in my opinion, K-State doesn't have a racism problem. Um, K-State has a diversity problem. Right. Um, 
and I'm always an advocate for diversity because, you know, especially somebody that lived in New York almost 15 years. Because there's not a most diverse city in the country than New York City. And you saw after 9-11, people didn't care what you look like. People didn't care how much money you had in your pocket. Everybody came together as one. And that's because it's just so diverse. And, you know, and K-State's starting to, to you know, put some things in place to make the university more diverse and and bring people of different backgrounds together. Because when you do that and you have people of different backgrounds and race and color together, they become friends, they become allies. And, and that, you know, any, any racism is squashed because you have such a diverse group of people together and they're all working for the same common goal. So, you know, the university did a great job um, sticking up for the kids and making statements. And I saw President Meyer uh, on uh, on CNN and, you know, he said the right things and he was strong in his conviction. And, you know, I was really impressed. I haven't had a chance to meet him yet, but I was really impressed what he said and the statements that he's put out and Coach Kleiman's statements and the assistant coaches and they've done all the right things. I just wish everything becomes better and all the kids get together and the students get together and they fight against racism and injustice. And that's what needs to happen. You know, all band together and say, no, not here. This is not Kansas State University because it's not. So, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I went to Salina Central High School, you know, for the middle of Kansas. Uh, we we were the diverse high school in Salina. Uh, our other high school was you know, fairly, everyone kind of looked alike, same income levels. Right. But, but it was Lina. I mean, let's be honest. It was um, <laughs> 5%, 10% minority at most. I don't even know what it was. But it it, it introduces you to, to people. It's it's kind of like a fraternity, Al. And it, even if it's not race, when you're in a fraternity, if you're from Western Kansas, you meet the guys from Overland Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn about other subsets of the culture that – uh, you and you learn different personalities. You have to get along with people. You stretch your boundaries. You discover things about yourself. And I, I do. I hope Kansas State. I hope part of this is because this is something you're very passionate about. Is a uh, diversity recruitment program at Kansas State and really try to uh, bring in more. You know, Kansas is fairly white. Let's be honest, but we can do a better job at Kansas State of of um, making sure people of color understand they're accepted and. Damn it, K-State, Manhattan, Kansas is a great town and a great place to go to school. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing place. Amazing people, amazing place, amazing town. And, like, last time I was there, I was so, you know, I got, like, the hair standing on my arm because I hadn't been there in a long time. And just seeing how much it has grown and 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 just seeing it from that that, that town that in 1987 when I walked on campus to just seeing everything now and it's like, dang, man, this place is really, really taken off. And it just made me proud to see what Manhattan has become uh, as, as a place. And it's just an amazing people, you know, amazing place with amazing people and just an amazing city. Amazing city. There's probably few places in the United States where people our age can look at their college town and really grasp and understand the impact of having a great college football program can have. Yeah. I mean, cause it was so bad. I mean, we were, it was so bad. We had Aggieville and there were, <laughs> they were trash bars and we just, we had our thing. It was fine. But now, I mean, the whole city's grown up and the thought of not having college football this season, um, I worry about, Fragile towns like Manhattan, where so much of the business is built on 
not just the college students, but those college football weekends. I just worry about my little town, man. No, no, Harry's clothes, man. I was sick. That's horrible. It's ho- it's horrible. I broke my heart, man. I've had so many great dinners and conversations uh, with with my boys and and Harry's, and it just yeah, it broke my heart to see that they they closed down. So yeah, one of the one of the best restaurants in the Midwest, and um, the chef's a friend of mine, and it's just oh, it's horrible. It's just you know. You come to Manhattan, you know the big time announcers would come to town, and they'd go to Harry's. That's it was that's known. That's the spot. Yep, that's the spot they go to. I remember when Applebee's first opened up in Manhattan, and there was a waiting list for like three months. <laughs> Applebee's showed up in Manhattan, and it was like, yeah, we're we're taking reservations, but we're about three months out right now. What? <laughs> So yeah, Manhattan has changed big time. Uh, oh, we still do that crap. I they built the Red Lobster here, and the same thing happened. I'm like, really? It's Red Lobster. <laughs> it's Red Lobster. Come on, man. Go. Uh, oh my god. It's uh, but it's a great place. And what do I know? You talk about you not going any place in Las Vegas. They could have renovated the entire town. I hardly leave anymore. I I got my. Uh, I, I've never seen this before, but Google sent me my like monthly map for June, showing me where uh-huh. the place I went. I'd gone nine places in an entire month, and five of them were medical buildings. It's like <laughs> I'm just sitting at home now. I just sit at home and call people. It's working. You know what? I, I'm literally. I, I don't leave the house very often here. <laughs> um, but you know, it's uh, hopefully we uh, everything moves forward and. We get over this thing, and hopefully we have some type of football in the fall. These kids deserve it. They work hard, and, you know, I, I want to see them on the field. And, and uh, you know, hopefully things get back to normal sometime soon. You know, it's going to be a fight to do it, but, you know, hopefully it does. And uh, when it does, I'm coming to Vegas. Come on out, man. You got you got you got a place to stay. You're always welcome in my house. You bet, brother. Love you, man. Thanks for taking Love you too, talk. bud. Okay. Absolutely, my friend. I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. From Overland Park to Manhattan, Kansas, to Manhattan, New York, to L.A., back to New York, and now Las Vegas, Al's career has been fun to track. He's a warm and gracious friend. I feel lucky to have him and so many others who I call brother from my fraternity days at Kansas State. Speaking of which, I am not the only member of my fraternity and that era at Kansas State to have prostate cancer. So men... 45 and older. Go get your PSA scored. That's how they found mine, along with the cancer suffered by my fraternity brothers, Tad Christian and Mike Martin. It's a simple blood test that aids in the early detection of prostate cancer, and it could save your life. Take care, everyone. I'll talk to you real soon. I told you imaginary friends are real. This is just so exciting. This Friday, get ready for the movie event with the greatest cast you've ever imagined. Showtime. Ryan Reynolds, John Krasinski, Kaylee Fleming, Fiona Shaw, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Louis Gossett Jr., Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, George Clooney, Maya Rudolph, Bradley Cooper, Sebastian Maniscalco, John Stewart, Sam Rockwell, Aquafina, Keegan-Michael Key, and Steve Carell. I need to throw up or I need a snack. It's one of the two. Gross. If. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Written and directed by John Krasinski.